0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 43. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and this episode is Drake Burns Down the West Indies in St. Augustine. I'm recording this episode on October 15, 2021, in New Orleans. At this point, you might well be wondering why this isn't the Francis Drake podcast, Well, that is an awesome idea, but never fear. For those of you who might be getting tired of the 16th century English man who most profoundly influenced the course of English North America, we are mostly through our tour of Drake's career. We will do an episode on the defeat of the Spanish Armada, in which Drake figured prominently and probably another to stare unflinchingly at his legacy, and especially the debate of the location of Nova Albion on the Pacific Northwest. I hope this episode pushes you into the more Drake camp, as I have been since I started reading about him. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the story of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there is dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, genius, defeat, and glory. Mostly, though, we are here to have some fun. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans as much as we like making it. And that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. At the end of our last episode on the timeline, Set Fair for Roanoke Part 3, Sir Francis Drake and his fleet arrived at Ralph Lane's first Roanoke colony, ready to resupply the settlers in June 1586. He and Lane agreed to a plan to do exactly that. But an early and massive hurricane intervened, dispersed a good part of Drake's fleet, and crushed the morale of the already beleaguered colonists. After the storm, Lane and a bit more than a hundred of his men decided to take Drake's offer to carry them home to Old Blighty. Drake and his fleet departed Roanoke only days before Sir Richard Grenville arrived with another batch of colonists. Much to the mystification and eventual irritation of the easily irritated Grenville. In this episode, we will look at Drake's voyage to the West Indies in 1585 and 86, which fundamentally ended with a rescue at Roanoke. There are three reasons to do this. First, it was this mission more than any other affront to Philip that made direct war between Spain and England inevitable. Without that war, and without the defeat of the Spanish Armada in the course of that war, it is far from clear that English settlement in North America would have unfolded as it did, or that it ever would have happened. Second, Drake burned down St. Augustine and affected the course of the Roanoke colony, both of which are decisively within the mandate of the podcast. Finally, Drake's West Indies voyage was a great moment in military history, an extraordinary example of amphibious warfare long before we used the term. We are back in the summer of 1585, and careful observers could hear the ever-louder drums of war between Spain and England. Spain's Philip II and his erstwhile sister-in-law Elizabeth I had been in a Cold War for most of 20 years— complete with a 16th-century edition of the same tactics of the Cold War, with which our more wizened listeners grew familiar in the years between World War II and the fall of the Soviet Union. There was espionage. Spain's Inquisition kept careful tabs on everything, interrogating, often with enhanced techniques, any English sailor who fell into its hands... Elizabeth's celebrated spymaster, Francis Walsingham, built a sophisticated network of spies and informants on the continent and in the English Merchant Marine. There was subversion. Spain stirred up resistance among England's Catholics and conspired with them to attempt to assassinate Elizabeth and install the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots on England's throne. She would go on trial for conspiracy against Elizabeth on October 14, 1586, just after Drake would return from the West Indies' voyage. And exactly 435 years ago, as I write these words, there was proxy war. Elizabeth and her Protestant Privy Council worked to divert and weaken Spain indirectly— by supporting the Dutch revolt against Philip and his Duke of Parma in the Netherlands and the Huguenots in France during its religious wars, and by unleashing as many as 200 privateers against Spanish shipping in the Caribbean, the Atlantic, and in the economically important cod fisheries off Newfoundland. Elizabeth supported Sir Humphrey Gilbert and his younger brother, Sir Walter Raleigh, in their projects to colonize the Atlantic coast of North America in no small part because she hoped to establish a forward base that would enable Drake and the privateer navy he inspired to operate against Spain more effectively. Yet with all this, both sides had tried to avoid all-out war. Philip had taken on a lot of debt defending Catholicism and Spain's hegemony in the Netherlands and fending off the Ottoman Turks in the Mediterranean, who had quickly rebuilt their navy after their catastrophic defeat at the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. He hoped to take down Elizabeth by stealthier means. As for the cautious Elizabeth, she was forever worried that England, or at least her reign, would not survive an all-out war with Philip, and she feared that English Catholics would rise up against her if Philip invaded. Finally, notwithstanding all of this, There was considerable trade between the two countries, and the wealthy merchants of both argued for peace. The summer of 1585 brought new escalations and an enlarged crisis. The Dutch rebels begged for more aid, and Elizabeth feared they would go down in defeat, and that would free Parma's battle-hardened soldiers to cross the Channel. Then Philip, down to his last nerve put an embargo on English merchants trading in Spanish ports. He seized their ships, seemingly to incorporate them into his invasion fleet. Then one of them, the Primrose, fought off a Spanish boarding party and captured a copy of Philip's orders. His purpose was now clear, at least to the Protestant hawks, on Elizabeth's Privy Council. It was in this context that she authorized and backed Drake's mission to the West Indies. On July 1, 1585, she commissioned Drake to attack Spanish ports for the purpose of recovering the English ships seized by Spain and freeing the English crews languishing in Spanish jails. Perhaps more importantly, she issued commissions of reprisal to English merchants who had lost ships, which permitted them to recover their losses by plundering Spanish assets wherever they might be found. By these commissions, Drake had what he needed— finally, to sail against Spain wherever he chose without fearing that the proverbial rug would be pulled out from under him when he got home. While profit was, as always, a motive, geopolitical considerations were front and center. John Sugden, author of a very entertaining biography of Drake, which I've quoted before, sets the table for us, quote, Although sometimes described as a grand privateering raid, Drake's voyage was not motivated by purely commercial ends. Money was needed by the Queen to finance a new initiative in the Netherlands. Very well, then, let Drake supply it. And with Philip starved of his American treasure, it was supposed that his military offensive in Europe would come to a halt. That chirped Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, to William Cecil, is the string that toucheth him indeed, for whilst his riches of the Indies continue, he thinketh he will be able with them to weary out all other princes. Those taken away himself will quickly fall, and I know by good means that he more feareth this action of Sir Francis than he ever did anything that hath been attempted against him. Close quote. This would obviously turn out to be magical thinking which is never in short supply at the beginning of bold military adventures. This would be, by the standards of the time, a colossal venture. The flower and chivalry of the Protestant nobility invested, or committed their ships. All in all, 27 ships and another eight pinnaces were to sail under Drake's flag, at that point by far the largest fleet ever dispatched from England. The voyage attracted important people— including the hard-nosed Martin Frobisher, who did not much like Drake, but nevertheless served as his vice-admiral in command of the 400-ton Primrose, and Christopher Carlisle, Francis Walsingham's stepson, who would command the ground troops for the expedition. Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, contributed the galleon Leicester under the command of his brother-in-law, and the West Country Hawkins family, who had gotten so much of this rolling with their raids 20 years before, contributed four ships. Drake, who had experienced Her Majesty's flip-floppery before, sailed from Plymouth on September 14, 1585, leaving even before his fleet had been fully victualed to avoid the risk that Elizabeth would have second thoughts. This was the first time that he had commanded a big fleet. And on the afternoon of that very day, once out of range of any royal messenger that might have been dispatched, he assembled the fleet's principal officers on his flagship, the Bonaventure, to determine the procedures and protocols for governing the fleet at sea. Sugden says that Drake developed the practice of using his wider group of officers as a source of advice and ideas, but confiding closely only in Frobisher and Carlyle, who wrote of Drake, quote, for my own part, I cannot say that ever I had to deal with a man of greater reason or more careful circumspection. This frankly fits closely with the picture of Drake that I have developed after having read five books on him. He was not afraid to listen to competent men who did not much like him, Frobisher in this example, and he listened to his men, even if he did not always do what they wanted, he explained himself. Which is in itself a gesture of respect from a 16th century captain at sea, and unlike most of his peers, was what today we would call a servant leader, pitching in to do difficult manual work, like hauling on ropes and refilling water casks alongside his sailors. On the 22nd of September, Drake and the Bonaventure and Carlisle and the Tiger playfully competed to capture a ship loaded with fish in the Bay of Biscay. Carlisle won, and thusly provisioned, the fleet set sail for Spain, arriving at the mouth of the Vigo River in northwestern Spain before the end of September. The fleet still needed adequate food for the Atlantic crossing, and Drake intended to buy it, or take it, from the Spanish. Drake sent two questions to the local governor. Was Spain at war with England? And why had Philip impounded English ships? The governor, Don Pedro Bermudez, knew better than to pick this fight, and courteously replied that he knew of no war, and that although English ships had been seized, they had now been released. He sent provisions to Drake's fleet in a gesture of goodwill, including bread, wine, oil, grapes, and marmalade. Drake needed more, however, and after a dodgy standoff and a two-hour negotiation between Drake and Bermudez in rowboats in the middle of the river, they had a deal. Drake would do no harm to the local towns, and Bermudez would allow him to buy provisions and refill his water without trouble. This happened over the next ten days, during which various Spaniards came aboard the Bonaventure and learned, in Sugden's words... That the terrible dragon of the sea was far from inhospitable. The delay at Vigo, partly because of provisioning and partly because of contrary winds, would cost Drake and his men dearly. They departed on October 11th, sailing south along the Portuguese coast in hope of intercepting the fall flota, the huge Spanish treasure fleet. The flota had, in fact, passed through the Azores on October 7th when Drake was at Vigo. But by the time Drake got down the coast of Portugal and rounded Cape Vincent, the flota had reached safety in Spain. Drake had missed his prey by a mere 12 hours, which cost him and his men a fortune and deprived the rest of us of an epic naval battle that we might have studied for the next 400 years. Drake sailed on. By November 3rd, his fleet had reached the Canaries, and Drake made a quickly aborted attack on the Isle of Palma. The resistance was stiff, however, and just as the English approached within range of Spanish guns, a cannonball passed right between Drake's legs, barely missed Frobisher and Carlisle, who were walking with him, and smashed into the ship above decks, sending splinters everywhere. Imagine if that cannonball were a few inches off in either direction. The history of the English and the Americans would have changed momentously. Sometimes, history is a game of inches. Drake, Frobisher, and Carlisle unsurprisingly decided to break off that particular attack and headed south for Cape Verde, arriving at the island chain's principal city, Santiago, on November 17th, 1585. This was a bad day for Santiago. That evening, Carlisle landed with a thousand men east of the town so they could attack by land. As they were marching, Drake took his fleet around to the harbor and drew the attention away from the city's rear. The shore batteries fired a few times, but the inhabitants took that brief delay to run away with their valuables into the countryside. Drake went ashore even before Carlisle's men had marched in, raised the flag of St. George over the official buildings, and stripped the town of its artillery, powder, some luxury goods such as silk and cotton, and even the bells from the churches. He dispatched a messenger to the governor, now in hiding, and threatened to burn the town if the Spanish did not pay a stiff ransom. There was no reply, so Drake made good on his threat and burned down Santiago and several of the surrounding villages. The fleet left Cape Verde for the West Indies in late November. A few days into the crossing, a virulent disease swept the fleet, killing two to three hundred men over a period of days and leaving many more unable to work for extended periods. Drake limped into St. Kitts, then uninhabited, and the men went ashore for fresh air and social distancing, while the ships were cleaned and apparently somehow fumigated. We do not know the disease. Scholars speculate that it was typhus and Drake did not know what caused the disease. But they clearly understood that getting out of those ships would reduce the spreading of the disease. Drake decided that his next target would be Santo Domingo on Hispaniola, the oldest Spanish city in the New World and then comparable in size to all but the largest of metropolitan Spain's cities in 1585, Santo Domingo was therefore a genuine city and worthy target. It had a cathedral, monasteries, substantial civic buildings, and could muster as many as 3,000 fighting-age men. It was also in the words of Angus Constantine's in his short book, The Great Expedition, Sir Francis Drake on the Spanish Main, 1585 and 86, The Bureaucratic Heart of the Spanish New World... If Drake took Santo Domingo, it would send shockwaves through the empire to which even Philip would need to respond. Santo Domingo's governor, Cristobal de Ovalle, had said that his city was among the strongest forts in Christendom. Its batteries bristled with cannon, aimed at approaches over land and by sea. Unfortunately for the Spanish, it would turn out that these defenses had a Potemkin quality. The gun carriages had not been maintained and had rotted in the tropical humidity, which effectively meant that the guns could be fired only once, if at all. And the fort's magazine had been depleted, the powder soggy in the wet heat. The substandard powder meant that the few useful cannon fired with much reduced range. On the way to Santo Domingo, Drake captured several Spanish prizes, including a ship with a letter warning Governor Ovalle that Drake was on the way, and a pilot who knew where Drake could land Carlisle and his soldiers for an overland assault. Just after midnight on New Year's Day, 1586, Drake and Carlisle went ashore to the beach suggested by the pilot 10 miles from Santo Domingo. Drake then returned to the ships and sailed them to Santo Domingo to distract the defenders from Carlisle's overland threat. As dawn rose, Drake's ships were at the mouth of Santo Domingo's harbor, just within the supposed range of the Spanish guns. That was when Drake, and presumably the defending gunners, learned that the Spanish powder was not delivering its full explosive punch. Drake ordered his fleet closer and began pounding the defenses with his ship's guns. By noon on New Year's Day, 1585, 317 years before any American would be worried about missing a January 1st bull game, Carlisle's men began their attack on Santo Domingo's walls. After a brief defense, the Spanish defenders melted away. Governor Ovale had missed most of the fight, having fled soon after Carlisle's men appeared. Costum says that Ovale later claimed that his horse had fallen in the muddy streets, and he had returned to his home to change his clothes before returning to the fray. The truth is he fled the city so precipitously that he left his wife behind, who became Drake's principal hostage. Tough guy, that Ovale. After securing the city and casing it for valuables, there wasn't much left after the evacuation. Drake and Ovale's representative negotiated over ransom to be paid to spare the city. Drake's opening ask was a million ducats, which, to put it in perspective, was several times Queen Elizabeth's entire annual budget, and no doubt far out of reach, of even a city as fair as Santo Domingo. The negotiations continued, and Drake burned down a building daily to keep the pressure up on Avale. Eventually, the Spanish sent in a new hostage negotiator, Garcia Fernandez de Tarcomanda, and he and Drake settled on 25,000 ducats. By the time Drake departed on February 1st, a third of the city had been burned, and almost all of its civic, military, and religious buildings had been destroyed. Torquemanda reported all of this to Philip II, and his assessment of Drake survives, quote, Francis Drake knows no language but English, and I talked with him through interpreters in Latin or French or Italian. He had with him an Englishman who understood a little Spanish and who sometimes acted as interpreter. Drake is a man of medium stature, fair-haired, heavy rather than slender, and jovial, yet careful. He commands and rules imperiously and is feared and obeyed by his men. He punishes resolutely. He is sharp, restless, well-spoken, inclined to liberality and to ambition, vain, boastful, and not notably cruel. These are the qualities I saw in him during my negotiations." Torquemada was pretty on the nose, I'd say. Another thing happened during the negotiations, which bears mentioning, because it confirms Torquemada's assessment and bears on a later controversy. At some point before the deal was struck, Drake sent a delegation to the Spanish camp with a message. Now here's Costum's account of what transpired. The party included a black boy who had joined Drake's force after the capture of the city. Although they approached the Spanish under a flag of truce, the boy was stabbed and killed by one of the Spaniards, possibly because he was recognized as a runaway slave. The dying boy was taken back to the city and died in the cathedral in front of Drake. The English commander was furious It was said that nothing he did before or since ever matched his fury on that day. He responded by having a gallows built within sight of the Spanish. He then had two prisoners brought out, Dominican monks, and they were hanged in full view of their horrified countrymen. A third prisoner was sent to the Spaniards, explaining why Drake had hanged the two clerics and demanding they execute the murderer of the boy... Two more prisoners would be executed every day until the culprit was punished. The Spanish had little choice but to comply, and the murderer was duly executed within sight of the city. The killer, Daniel. Then, so will I have the decency to bring him to justice? Drake next set sail for Cartagena, which today is an excellent place for a boy's weekend. Unless, of course, you hate great food, Cuban cigars, and the best local rum you'll find anywhere. Then, it was the largest city on the Spanish Main, and one of the places gold and emeralds were stored while waiting for shipment to Spain in a flota. Cartagena was not as big as Santo Domingo, but it was much better defended. Drake knew that in capturing Cartagena, he would humiliate Philip, which was Drake's idea of a fine day. The problem was Cartagena knew Drake was on the loose. The governor, Don Pedro Fernandez de Busto, prepared the city as well as he could. All non-essential residents evacuated, and with them almost everything of value that could be carried. He called up militia and drilled them, gathered weapons, strengthened and repaired fortifications and sent scouting boats along the coast to give early warning of an approaching fleet. Fernandez had assembled well over a thousand men to defend the city, including crews and two well-armed galleys in the harbor, defenders along the walls, and at least 400 Indios Amigos, Indian allies, with bows that shot poisoned arrows. Cartagena was the hardest target that Drake and Carlisle had encountered. Drake, still with around 1,800 men capable of fighting, had two advantages. The first was morale. Drake had racked up quick and largely bloodless victories at Santiago and Santo Domingo, and they were led by Drake, whose reputation as a commander had achieved almost mythical status among both the English and the Spanish. Try as he might, Fernandez had a hard time instilling confidence in his own men for exactly the same reasons that the English had it. Drake's second advantage was that of any agile attacker. He could pick the time and place of the battle and thereby concentrate his force, while Fernandez had to defend an entire perimeter. Now, Cartagena has complicated geography. If you are not making sushi or playing lawn darts as you listen to this, you might pop up in your map app of choice and take a look at it. The old city surrounds the Plaza Santo Domingo, a peninsula that looks like a broken dog leg extends from La Marina Park at the edge of the old city to the south and then southeast, and that forms the main harbor. In 1586, that peninsula was really just a spit of sand. Now it's covered by ...luxury hotels. The Spanish had built a defensive earthwork across it... ...just down from today's La Marina Park... ...at a narrow point in the Spit... ...about 150 yards across. It was here that Drake spotted a weakness. At low tide, there was a gap... ...at each end of the earthwork defenses... ...where the sea had receded and only beach remained. So it was here that he decided to attack... If he could get through, the city behind would fall. The Spanish had committed a lot of men to the defense of the earthworks, up to 300 Spanish militia and 200 Indian allies, over one man per foot of earthwork. Late at night on February 9, 1586, Drake and Carlisle landed 1,000 men well down the spit out of sight of the Spanish, who had not thought to post sentries. They put ashore in the area now known as Castillo Grande, where they spit dog legs to the southeast, and marched to the earthworks, a schlep of something like two miles, right past the Intercontinental Hotel, where I stayed on my boys' weekend. When the Spanish, full of piss and vinegar, saw the approaching English in the pre-dawn about 4 a.m., one of them yelled, "'Come on, you heretic dogs!' Carlisle gave the order to attack, bellowing, "'God and St. George!' And the English rushed forward. "'That was how you did it, old school.' In the event, the English crashed through the Spanish defenders, trying to hold the beach in short order, and then divided their force. Some of them rolled up the flank of the Spanish and Indians behind the earthworks, and the rest rushed through the open area that is now La Marina Park and poured into the city.' Cartagena was Drake's by dawn. Only 28 Englishmen had died. Drake set up his HQ in the house of the captain of the Spanish militia, Alonso Bravo, from whom Drake demanded a ransom of 5,000 ducats. The two men reached an agreement, and Drake even released Bravo to be with his wife, Elvira, who had fled across the inland waterway with most of the rest of the city's civilians. She was suffering from a fever and died shortly. Drake allowed her husband to bury her in the city's Franciscan graveyard. He attended the funeral and ordered his men to fire a volley and salute over her grave. Drake even weighed the ransom he'd extracted, which I have to admit surprises even me. The usual ransom negotiations began, with Drake burning down a couple of buildings each day until an agreement was reached at 107,000 gold pesos. There were also private deals, mostly with the church, which netted another 250,000 pesos, much of it off the books. And of course, the English took a lot of stuff, including 60 Spanish cannon and so forth. All in all, the haul was pretty good in the aggregate. The problem was that it had to be divided among so many people, including Drake's employees and his investors. Any entrepreneur today would instantly recognize this problem. It's not the value you create. It's the dilution, stupid. Then the fever that had killed Alonso Bravo's wife started killing the English. Drake lost his faithful comrade, Tom Moon, who had been with him at Nombre de Dios in 1573 and on the golden hind on the circumnavigation mission of 1577-80. Drake buried Moon in the grounds of Cartagena's cathedral, where, presumably, he rests even today. On February 27th, Drake called his officers together to discuss the fate of Cartagena. There was some discussion that Drake should keep the city for England— and make it a permanent settlement in the New World, right in the heart of Spain's most valuable possessions. This idea, had it worked, would have radically altered the subsequent development of South America. Obviously, it was an entirely impractical idea. Drake and his men quickly realized that the military commitment required to hold it against Spanish counterattacks would have been an impossible burden for England, which at that point was not nearly as powerful as Spain the part about all the fever spreading through the city no doubt also influenced their decision to leave. With this second devastating bout of disease, Drake and his officers reassessed their previous plan to attack Nombre de Diaz on the Caribbean coast of today's Panama, a well-defended Spanish port that Drake had visited before. They spent March 1586 refitting and provisioning the ships, baking hardtack and loading up. In addition to the loot, Drake seems to have embarked several hundred blacks, Indians, and Turks or Arabs who had been enslaved under the Spanish. And on April 10th, the fleet got out of Dodge, to butcher a metaphor. Only two days later, a big Spanish fleet arrives sent from Seville to hunt down Drake. So sadly for them, El Draque had gotten clean away. Drake sailed through the gap between the Yucatan Peninsula and Cuba and stopped at an unoccupied stretch of the coast of Cuba to take on fresh water. There, Drake, as he had always done, joined with the working sailors, quote, "...into the water to his armpits, fully clothed and shod, carrying barrels and demijohns of water." That done, he apparently flirted with the idea of attacking Havana or establishing a settlement on another part of Cuba's coast, but contrary winds thwarted any move in that direction for three weeks. Early May, he sailed up the east coast of Florida in search of the English settlement at Roanoke Colony. On May 27, a lookout spotted a watchtower along the coast marking the location of St. Augustine, the base that Pedro Menendez de Avilas had used to launch his attack on the Huguenot settlement at Fort Caroline, near today's Jacksonville, and to slaughter its inhabitants, 22 years before. Drake sent Carlisle and a few soldiers in boats to investigate. There was no sign of any Spaniards, but in the distance they heard music, a fife, playing the Protestant song, William of Nassau. The musician turned out to be Nicolas Bourgognon, a French Huguenot who had been captured by the Spanish in 1580, and now worked as an indentured servant. Bourguignon was apparently delighted to guide the English to St. Augustine, which sat around a bend across the inland waterway. The assault on St. Augustine was, frankly, not that interesting. The Spanish all ran away. Drake and his men stripped the town of anything of value, including very prosaic things such as furniture, door hinges, and basic tools that might be useful to the Roanoke settlers. And then he burned it to the ground when the locals did not respond to his demand for ransom. Easy peasy, in and out, in just a couple of days. The fleet set sail for Roanoke on May 29th, roughly as Ralph Lane was springing his trap on Wingina. And here is where we pick up the story from the last episode on the timeline, set fair for Roanoke Part 3. On June 8th, Drake arrived at Hatteras looking for Lane and his men. There he picked up a few of the English who had been dispersed to forage in small groups, and they guided him up to Roanoke by June 9th. At this point, I'll send you back to last week's episode for the details. Suffice it to say, that Drake had intended to resupply Lane's colony. But after an early and violent hurricane that scattered some of Drake's ships and broke the morale of the colonists, Drake took them on board and sailed for England. That would be the end of the episode, but for the mystery of the freed black and Indian enslaved people that Drake had taken on board in Cartagena. Nobody has been able to ascertain for certain what happened to them. Angus Costum speculates that Drake wanted to set them ashore at Roanoke Island to join the English settlement there. That didn't happen. Drake's biographer John Sugden is silent on the question as is Samuel Balfe. David Beers Quinn, author of the very thorough set Fair for Roanoke, Voyages and Colonies, 1584-1606, had this to say, quote, When Drake and Lane met on June 11th, they found they had much to discuss. Drake could not have known that so few men would have been left in 1586. His actions at St. Augustine had shown clearly that, even though he anticipated a Spanish attack on the colony— His objective was to help strengthen the two or three hundred men he expected to find, augmented perhaps by as many again in the spring of 1586, so that the Spanish could be repulsed when they appeared. It was for this he had surely brought the furniture of the town of St. Augustine and proposed to leave free to black slaves and probably other men had he still some South American Indians on board. But instead of a reinforced colony, Drake found just over a hundred discouraged men short of food, even if they expected crops to be available within a few weeks. Michael Guasco, professor of history at Davidson College, wrote a well-reviewed book in 2014 called Slaves and Englishmen, Human Bondage in the Early Modern Atlantic World. Professor Guasco digs into the mystery, adding some useful detail, but mostly speculation. In Cartagena, he says that so many runaway and liberated Africans roamed the streets after the English occupation that Drake was forced to enact regulations regarding slaveholding. Some of the English sailors had taken liberated black or Indian women and re-enslaved them for sexual purposes, and possessing them seems to have become a mark of prestige and therefore disruptive competition among the Englishmen at the bottom of the social ladder." Drake's solution was to declare that none, under the degree of ensign, should keep a Negro or other stranger. The idea apparently being that officers, at least, would be more tractable to Drake's command and unlikely to disrupt the ordinary functioning of the ships. Professor Guasco reports, as others have done, that Drake may have planned to hit Nombre de Dios, where he had first formed an alliance with escaped, formerly enslaved blacks, the Cimarrones, in 1573. If so, it may have been his intention to bring blacks from Cartagena to Panama to help him get the band back together. But when disease ripped through, Drake's men attacking the isthmus lost its appeal. In any case, Professor Guasco did the hard work of digging through the primary sources and adds a few clues to the mystery without solving it. According to Spanish depositions... A handful of blacks from Drake's ships ran off in Cuba when the fleet was taking on fresh water and at St. Augustine. Professor Guasco suggests that this is evidence that, quote, the English commander was no benevolent liberator, close quote. But I'm not so sure. It seems equally possible that the handful of blacks who deserted the fleet just hated the frankly miserable life aboard ship, especially when they had no clue where it would be going next and what shooting war Drake might drag them into. The English sources are virtually silent. Professor Guasco notes that none of the main primary sources for the voyage mention the blacks on board, much less their fate. I should add that it's not because the people writing those would have been ashamed to describe their existence or what might have been done with them. As curiously, per Gwasko, none of the English settlers from Roanoke ever mentioned the presence of Africans on Drake's ships. Neither did they say anything about his intent to leave them with several hundred laborers. According to Ralph Lane's account, when Drake first arrived, he offered to supply the settlement with victuals, munition, and clothing, but also of barks, pinnaces, and boats. There was no mention, however, of Indian or African slaves— Rather than tediously rewriting it, I'll read the two paragraphs from Professor Guasco's book that summarize possible scenarios in what we mostly don't know from the historical record. Quote What then happened to the Africans on board the fleet? One possibility is, as several historians have suggested, that upon their departure from the North Carolina coast, the English ships simply disembarked the Africans in order to lighten their load. This scenario, however, seems unlikely, considering the commodity value of Africans, especially given how little gold, silver, or other valuables the expedition had collected. Interjection. Drake had actually collected a lot of gold and silver in absolute terms, just not as a proportion of the total investment for the voyage. Back to Professor Guasco. This supposition is based on the assumption that Drake's fleet was badly overcrowded, and the addition of a hundred more Roanoke settlers meant that some people had to go. Unfortunately, this conclusion does not bear the burden of close scrutiny either. By the time Drake's fleet reached Roanoke, his ships were, if anything, undermanned, having lost more than 500 men and perhaps close to 1,000 to sickness or to death in battle. Many Africans, who must have been dispersed throughout the fleet, were hard at work keeping the ships afloat when Drake anchored off Roanoke Island. Another likelihood is that Drake took many, if not all, the Africans back to England with the fleet and disposed of them in London and various port cities, English ships that traveled to the Caribbean routinely returned to England with a number of Africans on board, even though the practice was becoming increasingly controversial in the late Elizabethan England. That Drake returned from Roanoke with at least a few slaves is evidenced by the fact that Lady Raleigh, the wife of Sir Walter Raleigh, the sponsor of the Roanoke colony, possessed African servants during the late 1580s. Perhaps they were among those who returned to England with Drake in 1586. Also, it may be no coincidence that most of the compelling evidence for the presence of large numbers of Africans in England, many of whom seem to have Hispanic names, dates from after the mid-1580s. Back to me. I regard all of this as extremely speculative. In short... There were a huge number of witnesses and written output among the Roanoke colonists from such luminaries as Ralph Lane, Thomas Harriet, and John White, all of whom were prone to write down their observations in detail. None of them mentioned a large population of blacks or Indians in Drake's fleet, much less their fate. There no doubt were blacks along. Drake had a long track record since his 1573 alliance with the Cimarrones of inviting freed blacks to join his crew. We further know that he himself had rejected trading in slaves since then, as long-standing and attentive listeners well know. Even Professor Guasco recounts Spanish reports that say that Drake would not release freed blacks back to the Spanish even on an offer of ransom, unless they themselves requested to return. My guess, putting all of this together, is that the population of blacks that left Cartagena with Drake was much smaller than the Spanish estimates that put the number in the hundreds, and that those who made it to England found work for themselves, or with help from Drake's crew, as servants, and so forth. Some may have been held as slaves in England— But in 1585, it was just as likely that they were paid, even if alone and cold and very far from the land of their birth. I have perseverated on the mystery of the missing blacks for a reason. A couple of months ago, I reread a passage from Jill Lepore, the famous Harvard historian and writer for The New Yorker magazine. In her highly acclaimed book, These Truths, A History of the United States, written in 2018... Professor Lepore wrote this short passage about the rescue of Lane's men at Roanoke. Quote, in June, a fleet arrived, commanded by Sir Francis Drake, a swashbuckler who'd sailed across the whole of the globe. He carried a cargo of 300 Africans bound in chains. Drake told the colonists that either he could leave them with food and with a ship to look for a safer harbor, or else he could bring them home. Every colonist opted to leave. On Drake's ships, they took the places of the Africans, people that Drake may have simply dumped into the Cobalt Sea, unwanted cargo. I'll be honest, I was shocked by this passage. And when I scurried to the notes in the back of Lepore's book, I saw no citation of any source for it. Never have I read that the Africans, if 300 of them there were at this point, were bound in chains. Professor Guasco assumes they were scattered around the fleet doing the work of the much depleted English crew. Nor was there any need to displace anybody to fit another hundred people in a fleet that was down between 500 and 1,000 from its original complement. Finally, Not only is there no evidence whatsoever that Drake dumped them in the Cobalt Sea, there is a great deal of evidence that by 1585 it would have appalled him to do it. The year in Panama in 1573 had been a sort of amazing grace moment for him. Time and again since then, he had treated blacks respectfully, paid them when they joined his crew, refused to turn them over to the Spanish even when offered money to do so, and reacted with rage at their mistreatment at Spanish hands. None of this means that Drake was a saint, but it does mean that Lepore's unsourced account is deeply suspect. Now it is the height of hubris for me, a rank amateur and humble podcaster, to call out Professor Lepore, who is deservedly a giant in her field. One need only listen to the introductory episode of this podcast to know that I have a high regard for her books and will return to them again on this journey. So with that very much in mind, two months ago I sent her an email in care of Harvard's history department about the passage, explaining that I was doing a podcast series on Drake and that her account seemed at odds with the other evidence I had dug up. I hoped that she could point me toward her source, since it hadn't been noted in the book. Harvard responded that they had passed my email along to Professor Lepore. Sad to say, I have heard only crickets. Emails get buried, and I may yet hear from Professor Lepore. If I do, my listeners will be the first to know. Until then, though, I'm afraid that I believe that in her description of Drake's visit to Roanoke, at least, Professor Lepore not only has weaponized history, but she seems to have imagined it. This episode is much longer than I prefer. Thank you for listening so far. Next week, we'll return to Roanoke for the Lost Colony of 1587, which will set us up for the war with Spain and the Spanish Armada. Please keep your comments, questions, eruptions of outrage, and pats on the back coming via the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, and by email at thehistoryoftheamericans@gmail.com. at gmail.com.